0: Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us either for the first time or all over again. Welcome to week eight. We're almost near the end. As a church, we have been slowly, methodically trying to wrestle down, intellectually working through unbelief, skepticism, doubt, deconstruction, reconstruction, and the Christian faith. So, you that are long term followers of Jesus, you that have just crossed the line of faith, you that are curious, you that are seeking, you that are outright skeptics and believe nothing or something that's not Christian, you're welcome. Now, the goal of this series is to provide space for us to think, to begin a conversation, not to answer every single question, but at the core of this has been a call for real intellectual rigor and also at the same time, encounter. Like I've shared for the last two weeks, in a Christian worldview, faith is not crossing your fingers, closing your eyes, and hoping this mythological idea is true. It's not a blind leap in the dark. Faith in a Christian worldview is informed, factual trust. It's fact and encounter mixed together. And the trust, of course, implies relationship. Let me just use the image of marriage. It's one thing to know marriages exist. It's one thing to know that a marriage can be out there. It's another thing to hear people talk about marriage. It's another thing to observe people who are married. It's another thing to even attend a wedding and observe friends or family get married. It is another thing for you to walk down the aisle and become married yourself. Marriage is what? Factual? Yes. Intellectual? Yes. Experiential? Oh, yes. And that's what this whole conversation is is about, it's factual, it's intellectual, it's mixed. Now over the the last two weeks we've looked at history, And ask questions like, what's the difference between science and history? Is history accessible? What are the rules of accessing history? Can we use that criteria to know? Did Jesus exist? Are the gospels even trustworthy as historical documents? Were there others outside of the Bible that can verify stuff we find in the Bible? Was there any reputable leader or historian that said, actually, yeah, all that stuff happened? Was there people during the time of Jesus or the early church that were not Christians that said, well, actually, we don't believe any of this, but yes, Jesus. Jesus was around and he was killed on a cross and he was buried. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we dealt with all the conspiracy theories floating out there in books, podcasts, and of course, on the internet, like... The idea of physical resurrection was an idea that everyone believed 2,000 years ago, and the Christians just hijacked it and used it to their own advantage. Or actually, no, the idea of the Son of God rising or dying and rising comes from deeply old religions, older than Christianity, and also was just co-opted by Christians. Or Jesus appeared to die, but He didn't really die. Or Jesus' body was stolen. Or everyone went to the wrong tomb. Or everyone just went to the local cannabis store and got high. Or went in the forest and ate the wrong mushroom. And they all hallucinated that Jesus was a live or actually this is just all made up this is a a vast conspiratorial lie that was last week now today as we keep going we're gonna continue to wrestle down some of the greatest challenges and again if you're a seeker or a skeptic or a christian most of us sitting here in 2022 probably don't catch some of this and it matters The very first one of these that I'm going to talk about today, we we touched on on Easter Sunday morning. Now, some of you have joined us since. Some of you weren't able to be with us. So, let's begin here. This is how Luke records uh, the resurrection account in Luke 24.1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and they went to Jesus' tomb. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus.' While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleam like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, I shared this a few weeks ago, and I also shared this in 2016. This is how you do not build the biggest lie in history. Beyond everything we've worked through over not just the last two weeks, but eight weeks, What I just read is so incredibly important. Now, again, it's so hard for us to hear this, so hard for us to swallow, but in this time, in these cultures, you would never, 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 never think of using women to be the firsthand witnesses to the largest lie in history. You just would never do this. Why? Because their story would kill the story before it got off the ground. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read some Jewish and Roman, and crossover between Roman and Jewish statements about the trustworthiness, the worth, and the legal standing of women in these these environments. The first is from the Talmud, which of course is the Jewish sort of summary of Jewish history, of law, of rabbinical pastoral interpretation. Here's one of them. The world cannot exist without males and without females. Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are female. Starting point. The next one comes from Josephus, who again we found out is a renowned, known Jewish man who during the same time of the early church was writing history from a Jewish and Roman standpoint, lived in Roman context and Jewish context, and and listen to what he says. But let not the testimony of a woman be admitted on the account of the levity and boldness of their sex, too emotional, can't trust them nor let slaves or servants be admitted to give testimony on the account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable they may not speak truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. In other words, a slave and a woman are on the same level when it comes to legality. Don't trust them. Here's another thing from the Talmud. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they themselves are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying the one who's rabbinically accounted as a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. In other words, a woman's legal testimony was put on the same level as a criminal. One of the famed historians during Roman times uh, wrote about Caesar Augustus, who of course was the emperor during the time of Jesus, and his opinion of women comes out here. Whereas men and women had always sat together, Augustus confined women to the back row, even at gladiatorial shows. No women were allowed at all to witness athletic contests. Indeed, when the audience was clamoring at the games for a special boxing match to celebrate Augustus's appointment as chief priest, Augustus postponed this till the early next morning and issued a proclamation, in effect, that it was the chief priest desire that women should not attend the theater before 10 o'clock. Here's my point. This is not how you build a lie in Jewish, religious Jewish, secular Jewish, or Roman culture. You use women as the linchpin to your story to prove Jesus has come back from the dead. Women were both considered in legal, public, public, legal, and religious settings untrustworthy. No better than a robber, no better than a slave, too emotional, second class at best. See, if someone was going to build a profound lie, they would not use them to be the epicenter of the lie. And beyond that, like I shared last week, 2,000 years ago, Greeks and Romans did not believe in physical resurrection at all, did not want physical resurrection at all. The Jews were the only ones at this moment that believed in the idea of physical resurrection, but it would not happen to one person. It would happen to everyone at the end of time all at once, and then God's judgment would just come. That's that's why, again, I love this, why N.T. Wright wrote, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Jews thought it was false, Romans, Greeks, everyone. Many believed the dead were non-existent outside of the Jewish faith. No one believed in resurrection. That is why as a historian, I can't actually explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind Him. See, it is the very central claim of Christianity that Jesus lived, died, and physically rose from the dead, which is crazy in itself. And then what's even more wild is it is affirmed and witnessed by the most untrustworthy witnesses of the day, women. And yet women, Mary Magdalene and this group, another name is Joanna, there's a whole group of them. They are the foundation of the story of the resurrection for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and even in 1 Corinthians 15 with Paul. If this was a fabrication or invention or seduction, The authors would have used people like Joseph or Arimathea or Nicodemus or Peter or John, any other person other than women. See, this is so significant. With what I just shared with you and what we've talked about for the last eight eight weeks, this is why you need to start arriving where William Wan did from Oxford University. He was a church historian and and, and a world-class historian when he wrote, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of an empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it must recognize they are doing so on some other ground other than scientific history, the act of researching science well, uh, scientific history well. Now, there's more. Remember, we learned this two weeks ago. You're not only looking to see if people who liked the person said, oh, yeah, 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 this is all true. You're always looking to see how enemies interact with the story. What do we do with those that hated Jesus and suddenly and deeply are changed and they start believing in Jesus and following Jesus? Let's call them the latecomers to the party. Let's, take, let's just take an honest moment to talk about James and a guy named Paul. Now, James wrote a letter in the New Testament called the book of James. He was a major church leader, but that's actually the end of the story. James was Jesus's half brother. He was one of Mary and Joseph's kids. He grew up with Jesus. (laughs) He saw everything. He later, of course, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. You can read about that in Acts 15. But he was not always a follower of Jesus. He was not a fan of Jesus. And he had access to Jesus from childhood forward. Now, when we read the Gospel of Mark twice, the majority of Jesus' family tries to shut Jesus down and shut him up. And James is one of them. It reads like this in Mark 3.21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus, for his family said, Jesus is out of his mind. Oh. Later, Mark 6.1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. He went to where he grew up. Accompanied by his disciples, he began to teach in the, in the synagogue, the local church, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked, I mean, what's this wisdom that has been given to them that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this one of Mary's sons and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Oh, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said only in his hometown among his relatives on his, in his own house is a prophet without honor. James and much of his family did not believe Jesus' claims. They weren't seekers. They don't care about his miracles or his profound teaching. They thought Jesus was crazy. They thought Jesus was a liar. They thought maybe he was demon possessed. They were angry. They wanted to shut him up and shut him down. He's a danger to himself, and he was a danger to them and their family's reputation. It took years. Jesus' life, James didn't buy in. Jesus' miracles, James didn't buy it. Jesus' teaching, nope, wasn't moved at all. Jesus' death doesn't seem to move him. Only when James, you gotta catch this, says that he meets his half-brother alive after he knows he's been crucified and murdered, only then does James say that actually my brother is what he claimed. It took a post-resurrection experience to convince James. James, this was all true. Only, here it is, when he met his dead brother fully alive, does he believe? Now, I know lots of you have lost people. Now, I want you to imagine that person you've lost that you love suddenly, three days, five days, a year, comes back from the dead and sits with you. That's the only way you would believe this is true. This is what happens to James. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, then Jesus appeared to James, then the apostles. Now we know from both Christian and non-Christian sources that James ends up being murdered for preaching about Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now I want you to catch this. How did James move from enemy and access to the inside, family member, to cynic, to skeptic, to doubter, to believer, to leader at the center of the early ancient Christian community and then being murdered? Why? Because of a lie? a really good story that convinced him because he would benefit from this? Remember, at this moment, there is zero benefit for being a Christian. There's no gain, there's no reputation, there's no money, nothing. What, because they showed James the wrong tomb? No, no, James simply says, I didn't believe any of this. My mom, think about this, my mom's Mary. I didn't even believe her. But I did believe when I met my dead brother, physically alive that is the only thing that convinced him and then he ends up giving the light his life for the one he hated oh then there's a guy that many of you would call or know as paul or saint paul but his original name was saul of tarsus now i wrote this years ago let me do it again this is who saul was Saul, religiously, was like the person who got the Pulitzer for writing, or the Oscar for acting, or the Victoria Cross for military bravery, or the gold medal at the Olympics, or the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, this guy was the real deal. Not just Jewish, educated as a Roman citizen, grew up in Tarsus, a major cosmopolitan center like New York, London, Hong Kong, or Toronto, spoke multiple languages, wrote in multiple languages. He'd have the equivalent at least of one, maybe two PhDs. And he studies under Gamaliel, who's one of the greatest teachers in Judaism of all time. And he actually was his personal understudy. He hated Christians. He thought that they were were an infection or a virus destroying the true Jewish faith. The story becomes really clear in the book of Acts. There's a guy named Stephen who becomes a Christian and declares that Jesus has risen from the dead. He speaks to the very religious body and political body, the Sanhedrin, saying, this is true and Jesus is who he claims to be. And he gets killed. He's the very first Christian to die for the Christian faith. It says in Acts 7, 58, that this community dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, remember, all this is happening between a year and a half and three years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Acts 9. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so if he found anyone who belonged to, the original name of the movement is The Way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this is again why this is important. This historical fact matches history. In 6 AD, extradition abilities were given to the high priest under the Roman provincial administration. In other words, what the Romans said is to the extended Jewish community that lived across the Roman Empire, sort of in these small pockets, you are responsible to maintain law and order among yourselves. So the high priest actually had the ability to deal with stuff in countries that were far away or cities far away. Now at this moment, the high priest who is getting letters from is Caiaphas, the same one that ordered the killing of Jesus. So Saul goes, we got to shut this down. Verse three, chapter nine. Saul, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. "I am Jesus whom you're persecuting? Now get up and go to the city and and you will be told what you must do. Now we don't have time today, but Saul becomes Paul, the greatest thinker of Christianity, writes two thirds of the New Testament. And why does this world-class thinker and religious zealot change? Intellect? Facts, advantage, easily gullible, he was unstable, the tomb was empty, so he just went and looked, oh, it's all true. No, no, no. He claims he physically encountered the physical risen Jesus, like the others had. Paul was one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of his day. He would have fully believed and taught the resurrection was true, but again, it would happen to everyone at the end of time, not just to one person. The only thing that changed his understanding of the deepest held beliefs he had Was he encountered Jesus really risen? So you got women at the epicenter of the story, which should kill the story, and yet the story explodes. Remember, it's 2022 today because history is divided by the resurrection of Jesus. You got James, who had access to him his whole life, doesn't believe, then says he met him with no advantage. And then you got Paul, radically changed. How not to build a lie? Why would Jesus' deepest critics and enemies become followers when there's no advantage and actually both of them end up getting killed? Because they actually, truly met Jesus. Now, this brings us back to a critical idea. When Jesus was walking around on the earth and he was doing ministry, what did he actually think about himself at the core of who he was? Because that helps us understand. Now, there are two titles that Jesus really liked that bring this home. Son of Man... And Son of God. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. He did almost all of his ministry in Jewish environments. Jews believe there's only one true living God. He's alone. Of, he's alone worthy of worship. And, and this drives home the point: something more is going on than meets the eye. Just stick with me for a moment as we work this through. Jesus's favorite description of himself was Son of Man. Now, when Jesus, and he used it multiple times, when Jesus was on trial, just before he's executed, listen to the interactions between the lawyers and pastors of the day and Jesus. It's found in Mark 14, 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. He gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus worthy of death. Now, why in the world is Jesus worthy of death? What does this all mean? Well, to understand Jesus and understand the New Testament, And to understand the whole Christian faith, you actually have to know your Old Testament. Any Jew hearing Jesus or others calling himself or him, son of man, would totally know where this comes from. This this connects all the way back to the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel 7, 9, he has this incredible vision, and you just need to listen to it. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days God took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, hair on his head white like wool, his throne flaming with fire, its wheels all ablaze. A river of fire flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands, some ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. Now, verse 13. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into God's presence. And the Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worship the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what Daniel saw long ago is now understood. The Ancient of Days is God the Father and the Son of Man is Jesus. And Jesus claims, yep, that's me. And notice that the Son of Man does not just get authority. It says that everyone worships Him. But if you're a Jew, you know only God gets worship. And that's why they thought Jesus deserved death, because when you claim to be the Son of Man, you were saying you were equal with, you had unity with, you were God. Jesus was claiming He was God. What? Stay with me. Years earlier, before this amount, this, this account, in Mark 2, 3, it says some men came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four of them. We all know the guy's paralyzed and unable to walk, but see, there's so much more we miss. In the Old Testament, being lame made you spiritually impure before God. The blind, the lame, and the cripple were not eligible for full participation in religious services and activities. Why? Because if you were born lame or cripple, either, ready, you had sinned or your parents had sinned. So it was bad enough he couldn't work, not have everyday experiences we all love, he was, in his view and everyone else's view, on, uh, on the outs with God. Okay, now, now watch this. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. After digging through the roof, they lowered the, 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 mat, uh, the mat the paralyzed man was laying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure the reaction of the guy was disappointment. I mean, another big Christian bumper sticker, another useless religious tweet. Thanks for making me feel good for a moment, but it doesn't matter. I want to be healed. I want to do things that I've dreamed about and fantasized about. I want to run around. I I want to have this experience. But you, some roaming teacher sort of prophet says your sins are forgiven. Now, he doesn't know actually his sins have been forgiven. Verse six. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? See, if Jesus is not divine, he's just committed the sin of blasphemy. Either he's God, he's mad, he's bad. There's no other option. They knew that this was an implicit divine claim. Jesus is smiling, saying, yeah, exactly. And what he's about to do with his deeds will prove it. Notice, Jesus never disagrees or never disputes the idea that only God can forgive sins. He's like, yep. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or get up and take your mat and walk? I'm sure the question hung over the air. Uh, There's no way to know if someone's sins are forgiven. Just because some stranger says your sins are forgiven, how do you know? How can you prove it? I mean, a nutjog can say that. A rational person can say, your sins are forgiven. But how do you know? And Jesus says, well, let me prove it. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on the earth. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. You say only God can forgive sins? Watch me as a human prove it. I'm fully God and fully human. I don't only forgive sins, I overcome sickness. Later, Jesus is meeting with another group of religious leaders, and and he goes way farther than he has before. It's in John 8, 56. Jesus says to his fellow Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. And they said, You're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Why? Because when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, he said to God, if I go back to Israel or back to the Jews in Egypt, who is sending me? What's your name? And in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now. That name, I am, is he who is and he who causes to be. This means I'm eternal, I'm self-contained, I'm above all things, I'm not included in creation, I'm above creation, I'm the creator, I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-existent, and I'm also not far away from you. I love when one famous Old Testament scholar said, I am, that I am means I am there with you where you are, I really am. So this name of God shows the holiness of God, the love of God, the transcendence of God, the imminence of God, the power of God, the might of God. And Jesus goes, yep, that's me. The same God that encountered Moses at the burning bush, you're looking at him right here, right now. Okay, you're like, how is this helping me believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Just one last thing. Son of man, divine claims, and then now son of God. I'm just going to read this, John 10, 30. Jesus says, I and the father, that's God, are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I, I, uh, I do the works of my father, but I do do them. Even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. And again, they tried seizing him, but he escaped their grasp. Here's the point. Jesus claimed equality with God and claimed to be fully God. God. Jesus, while he was walking around, claimed he could forgive sins. He said he existed before he was born. Claimed claimed to actually be the God that Abraham encountered. Claimed to be the God that Moses encountered. Claimed to be the only way back to God. And claimed that he could give eternal life. To any Orthodox Jew 2,000 years ago, talk to any Jew today living in Toronto. If I claimed all these things and claimed it, they would know I was claiming to be God. Later, Paul wrote to a church of Jews and non-Jews who come to follow Jesus in a place called Colossae. And we read this in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. From all eternity, Jesus in his nature has always been and will always be the image of God. Only in Jesus do we understand who God really is. You might ask, well, how can an invisible thing have an image? And I love when one scholar helps us when he wrote this. In Greek philosophy... The image has a share in the reality it's revealing. An image here is not distinct from or invisible from or uh, or uh, uh, is not distinct from the invisible like a facsimile or reproduction. The invisible has become visible. Jesus is the image of God. He's the exact visible representation of God. In Jesus, we see who God is. Creator, Redeemer, God of mercy, God of love, God of holiness, God who is judge. Now again... You can't walk around and claim all of this stuff in public to multiple people and there be no effect. In other words, if you claim this stuff, you literally are insane, or you're the devil, or you're mentally deranged, or you're involved in some bizarre long con, or you're actually what you claim. Now, here's the thing. If he is the devil, or a long con, or crazy, we would know that his character would begin to break and reveal His brokenness. But when you pair the claims of divinity with Jesus' life, it even becomes harder for you to deny. Remember, talk to the average person who thinks about Jesus who's not a Christian. They all love the idea of Him. And just listen to what He did. Jesus treated women with dignity and broke so much of the cultural, religious misunderstandings not from God. Jesus touched sick people. People that were never allowed to have family or community again, and and didn't just touch them, he healed them. He walked into the life of people encased in darkness and in evil. He gave them their life back. He actually gave gave them their minds back, made them right in the head. Jesus did not avoid. I want you to think about this. Jesus did not avoid uh, pain, sickness, at all. Jesus didn't avoid evil. Jesus didn't avoid any situation that actually could bring harm to him. He walked into all of it. Have you thought about it? Jesus sat with the smartest people and the simplest of people. Jesus sat with really skeptical people, insincere lying people, honest people, and he not only gave them all time, he gave them answers. Oh, he called out injustice, and at the same time, he taught truth without compromising. He liked young and old people. He didn't have a preference. It's really wild. He, he ate and talked with, have you thought about this? Political collaborators. He sat with people, if I give you a World War II analogy, he sat with people who collaborated with the Nazis. That, that's the same effect, a Jew working with the Romans. He, he sat with political collaborators and sex trade workers. He even sat with religious terrorists and pastors, and politicians, and stay-at-home moms, and entrepreneurs, and sick people, and well people, and he hung out, hung out in the countryside, and he was okay in small towns, and he liked big cities, he walked between cultures that never should have happened, he actually loved his enemies, he'd been taught his whole life to hate Samaritans, he ended up loving them, he taught people love, he taught people truth, he helped, he forgave, he was selfless, and his dying words as he was being murdered for something that he actually was, the son of God, and also all sorts of lies around it that were not true. But I'm, what does he say? Oh, oh, forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. Does this sound like a man who's an habitual liar? Does this sound like a man doing a long con? Does this sound like a mentally deranged or broken man who's disassociated from reality? Does this sound or look like the devil? His life and his claims are interconnected. Like I said a few weeks ago, every other great religious religious leader and philosophical leader on earth points to their teachings. And said, you follow them. I'm compromised sometimes. Jesus pointed to himself and his teachings and said they're unified. People are always drawn to Jesus because we all want what we see in him to be the human story. Every single time. And I just want to say he was what he claimed because he did what he did. What does this have to do with moving you from unbelief to skeptical to wondering to cross the line of faith? Well, it matters a whole lot. I love when one person gave this example. If a number of credible witnesses testified to you that Joseph Stalin died last year and then walked around Russia for two months, we would not be quickly to believe that, even if some evidence was present and there was no plausible theory why it happened. Now, why is this different than Jesus? Context counts. Stalin never claimed to be God. He never performed miracles. He never predicted he'd return personally from the grave. His resurrection from the dead would be completely out of place. Jesus' life, on the other hand, created a context in which the resurrection of the dead would not be a surprise. He claimed he was divine. He performed deeds that were interpreted as miracles. He predicted his resurrection. The context is not just evidence to his resurrection, but it does represent an additional perspective when some people say, well, people just don't come back to life after being dead. See, that's why the context of Jesus' life and claim cannot just be easily ignored. If God exists, there's no reason why the author of life could not raise someone from from the dead, and Jesus is the sort of person we might expect God to raise. Even if you're an atheist today or an agnostic or from another faith, why in the world did the women do what they did? What was so radical that Jesus' half-brother and Jesus' greatest enemy did this. And how do you reconcile the the insane claims of Jesus and yet actually the unbelievable character of Jesus? See, something more is going on here than fiction or conspiracy. Jesus is who he claimed. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus is alive today and you still can meet him. Why does this matter? Well, Again, to the many, many, many of you watching who are followers of Jesus, I just want to say this again. Your faith is real. Jesus is alive. You, you haven't bet on a dead horse. You, you haven't bet on myth. You're, you're not blind leaping. It is credible, historical, accessible. It's true. It's true. But can I challenge you as a Christian if you are one today? How is Jesus' resurrection from the dead helped you fear death, or deal with your fear of death. I've really watched in the last two years how fear has so taken the heart of so many of us. And the real fear of getting sick is actually the real fear of dying. And it's okay to be protective, and it's okay to be wise. But if Jesus' resurrection hasn't given you a boldness and a hope in the middle of all this, then I think your belief in Jesus' resurrection is not strong enough yet. Because guess what, everyone? We don't need to needlessly die, but we're all going to die. And Jesus' resurrection should be the thing that actually allows you not to be encased in fear. And if you're still encased in fear, sitting at home, terrified, I just want to say to you, Jesus' resurrection is true, and you need to ask Jesus to help you walk out of this fear. I also, I just want to say this. You know, as we're going to, Sam and I, in the next few weeks, not next week, but the week after, we're going to start talking about what we're going to do with church, how we're going to rebuild, what's the next season for Sanctus and other churches. And I just want to say if Jesus is alive, if he's really alive, he's really come back from the dead, he's really given us his spirit, there really is eternal life, then how is this amazing truth affecting your life right now? Like, if he's truly alive and you have eternal life, is it really affecting your giving? Like, are you giving to kingdom initiatives anymore? Are you giving time? Like, are you volunteering? Like, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? Last two and a half years, a lot of us just became real comfortable with doing very little. And now this moment is passing. That comfortability is turning into apathy. Apathy. And I I just want to challenge you, if Jesus is alive and you really believe he's alive and you know that actually death doesn't really have the final say, how is that impacting your giving, your serving, your gift-based ministry, your rebuilding, your telling friends and neighbors about Christ? Like if the couch has become your life or actually you've just become comfortable and you're not engaging in the things of Jesus, then the resurrection story is not strong enough for you. Or it's not, or it was, and it needs to be strong again. For some of you that are seeking and skeptical and wondering, I just want to continue to say, this is not smoke and mirrors. Where there's smoke, there's fire. There's a real fire here. This is a real fire. Something really is going on. And and next week, uh, as we end this series, I want to encourage you to think about encountering Jesus and giving your life to Jesus. As we look at this last moment, it's this amazing story between Jesus and Peter. Uh, and re- resurrection and restitution. And I just, I want you to be really transparent and open uh, as you work through facts and faith. So just simply this, God thinks that at every moment where this should have this died, it actually grew. Thanks that the very first of our witnesses, our preachers, our evangelists were women. Thanks even in that you were reversing history. Thanks that you walked into your half-brother's life and took the most ardent brother who couldn't stand you and he became one of your greatest followers. Thanks that you took uh, a religious, brilliant mind who hated us and he became one of us. Thanks that you're going to keep doing that. So just again, would you continue to reveal yourself to so many people that are listening to this and beyond this? Would you open people's mind not only to the facts but to who you are? But also, Holy Spirit, would you begin to work in us, really work in us, uh, cast out the fear of death that has become too strong in many of us, and also remove the apathy and the comfortability of what we've now become used to and re-engage your church to not only believe on the resurrection of Jesus, but actually act like he's risen from the dead. Yeah, Lord, we just, thanks for this moment. Keep working out your holy will among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And we all said. Amen.